you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're coming to the end of our series through the book of 1 Peter during Lent here. And uh, I'd encourage you this final week, there's the reading guide and the questions in your bulletin again. You'll notice the questions this next week uh, get a little more personal than maybe we've been previously. And the goal is to, uh, by this point, we should be at a point in our small groups of a time of sharing, of a time of uh, honest confession and reflection. And so the small group questions are a little more personal, trying to get us to uh, express what's going on in our own lives and how uh, we can use that relationship with one another to help us through these times. And so I would encourage you to reflect on those questions and also continue to dive into the reading guide this final week of our First Peter series. But today we're in First Peter chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. First Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God, appro- uh, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking to de- someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would take Your Word and mold our thinking to Your thinking. We ask that You'd mold our lives to reflect Your image. We ask that You would take Your Word, equip us, encourage us, correct us, and bring us faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, I hope today everybody I run into opposes me. Not only do I hope everyone opposes me today, but I hope actually everyone actively resists me today. They don't just have their back turned on me, but they're actually actively working against everything that I'm working for. Anybody in? Think. Do we have any defense attorneys among us this morning? How many of you wake up in the morning and say, today I want all of my strength and all of my joy to be zapped away. I don't want to have any strength today and I don't want to have any joy. I would contend that nobody wakes up in the morning seeking opposition and no one wakes up in the morning hoping that throughout the day they lose strength and they lose joy. Well, if we don't want opposition, 
especially opposition from the one who matters, God himself. And if we want to experience strength and joy, there's a pursuit that's being laid out before us this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. That is the pursuit of humility. There's a hard word this morning from God in 1 Peter chapter 5, and that is that he is in opposition. He's in opposition to the proud. But he gives favor. In other words, he, he, he's in a position of wanting to help. He's in a position of pouring out blessing to the humble. And then we see as we go on in 1 Peter 5 this morning, that as we pursue humility, what we're going to end up doing is we're going to end up casting our worries, our anxieties to the Lord. Well, what robs you of your joy? What robs you of your strength? Worry, burdens, and anxiety. When's the last time anxiety brought you joy? When's the last time worry brought you strength? But when we pursue humility, we will end up casting off our worries and anxieties because we're in a position of humility. And therefore, we can experience strength and joy and a life of favor under the reign of God. This morning, we come to the end of, of 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to spend the majority of our time at a couple of verses there, but don't want to skip over anything as well, especially because we skip over a lot of this a lot. We get to the end of a lot of stuff in the Bible, and we're just like, well, we got the main thing. Jesus died for us. We can skip over some of these key verses at the end. Well, let's go in here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. At some point, we can come back. The whole point of verses 1 through 4 is God speaking to the leadership of God's church. And so he says, I exhort the elders. When he's using the word elder here, it's not elderly or it's not um, older age. Elder is another word that's often translated as your presbyter or as your overseer. Sometimes it's translated as bishop, sometimes translated as, as pastor, and in other instances just translated as local overseer which is sometimes then said as local elder. So what these four, four verses are saying, hey, church leadership, people who have oversight over God's flock, this is how you are supposed to behave. And we could spend a lot of time here this morning, but I just want to summarize very quickly what's being said here, and that is God is saying, exercise servant leadership. In other words, God's saying to those that have oversight over his people, you're not in a position of leadership for personal profit or personal gain, but rather to serve God's people. The whole goal of, of being a shepherd, the whole goal of, of exercising oversight is not to achieve one's own purposes or to gain more profit for oneself, but rather is to lead God's people. And so what we need to do here when we're talking about church leadership, pastors and others who step forward to have oversight over a church is we have to hold them to a standard of servant leadership. Now, this is where it gets a little bit murky because some of us, when we think of servant leadership, we're like, well, just keep the peace. Put up the fence and, and keep everybody happy. Well, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, we're supposed to follow the example of the great shepherd, right? The ultimate shepherd, Jesus himself, is the example for those who shepherd God's church. When we look at the life of Jesus and how Jesus provided leadership, Jesus was not just some softy sitting in the corner. Hey, disciples, just do whatever you want. 
Make sure you come at home at night and we'll just forgive and do whatever. I mean, at one point, Jesus said to his lead disciple, he said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was not in the business of being soft and nice. Jesus was straightforward and firm. While at the exact same time of being straightforward and firm, he was also quick to extend forgiveness. This same Peter, this same Peter turns his back on Jesus, betrays Jesus three times, and then what does Jesus do with Peter? Peter, love me and feed my sheep. He makes Peter in charge of the whole church. He has Peter give the first ever Christian sermon. And so Jesus holds the line. He's a servant leader that desires to forgive and desires to serve. But he's not flimsy. He's firm on doctrine. He's firm on mission. But at the exact same time, he's quick to forgive. He's quick to extend care and love. And we should expect the same of our church leaders. That our church leaders would remain firm on doctrine and mission. But yet our church leaders would also be quick to forgive and quick to extend care. And we'd also recognize that our church leaders should never be in it for personal gain or personal profit. That's why there's always this delicate balance in the church world when it comes to money and, and pay and how we, and how we do this. I, I walk a really fine line and, and uh, really try to be extremely careful on this front because I realize the appearances that it gives. And so therefore, a lot of times we go to the other end of the spectrum just to protect and to be safe. But we, there should never be personal profit or personal gain as the goal for, for decisions. But yet, at the same time, there should be clear oversight and leadership. It's not like God is laying out a plan here saying, okay, leaders have oversight, and then no one to have oversight over. The design of God is that God brings together people into a church, to the body of Christ, and He's designed that body of Christ to have oversight, to have leadership. And that leadership needs to be held accountable to these standards. We could spend a lot of time on, on this uh, today. It's not the appropriate, the appropriate time. But we need to be aware of it and come back to it and, and learn how to hold our leadership to this and also live under leadership like this. And the final, the final thing on this, <clears throat> I didn't pick these verses today. Remember this thing. This was said a while ago. Thing that any accusation against church leadership had better be a very serious accusation and had better be dealt with very seriously. That God's not laying down a very low standard here. He's laying down a very high standard. And there's other parts in the Bible then where He lays down a very serious standard of leaders who, who go against this. And so if someone's going to make an accusation that leaders have gone against this, we need to recognize the seriousness of that accusation and then, and then deal with it in a, in a healthy way. This is reality. This is how God has designed 
design of the church. And so God is calling us to live in a community where we have servant leaders. And then we see here in, in verse, verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And, and what we have here, again, elders is referring to, to, the, the, to the bishops, the pastors, the local leaders, the overseers. And there's young people that are probably coming into the church that haven't lived under um, authority before. And God's Word's reminding young people, hey, you do need to submit to leadership. That, that you need to fall underneath authority. And so there's that call there for us to fall underneath the authority of the church. And then it goes in and lays out the next phrase for all of us. Notice what it says next. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So it's this weird dichotomy. On one hand, it's saying, leaders, be servants. But then it comes right out and says, everybody, be servants. Everybody, exhibit humility towards one another. And here's the primary pursuit here of 1 Peter 5, is that all of us would pursue humility. In other words, if we want to live a life that's not in opposition to God, where God's not opposing us, if we want to live a life where we can cast our cares and our anxieties to God, it's a life of humility. It's a life where we don't think less of ourselves, but we think of ourselves less. There's a great distinction there. God is not calling us to have a low self-esteem where we think of less of ourselves, but God's calling us to think of ourselves less, or in other words, to put the needs of others before we consider our own needs. That's what humility is. Humility is saying, hey, it's not about me, but it's about God, or it's about those who are in need, or it's about the weak, or it's about the widow, or it's about the orphan. True humility it's saying, it's not about me. This is what God is calling all of us to this morning, is to exhibit this, it's not about me attitude to one another. We see this in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, let your attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In other words, Jesus said, hey, it's not about me, it's not about my comfort, but it's about the kingdom of God. And so therefore, Jesus left the richness of heaven and came and lived here on earth. Jesus' attitude was, it's not about me. And now Jesus is calling us to have that exact same attitude. A life of humility. How do we begin to cultivate a life of humility? We begin to look at ourselves in light of God. I've used this illustration a lot before, but what happens when you're in the presence of greatness? you recognize that you're not great. I mean, a couple of while back, somebody from church, and this is not a good gift idea. I mean, we appreciated it. But let's not make this a habit, people. Think. Someone gave us the gift of dance lessons. Think. And one, how dare they think that we even needed dance lessons to begin with. Think. But then you show up for dance lessons, and you start taking dance lessons. Now, I'm a pretty good dancer, but um, you start dancing with a professional what do you begin saying or become aware of very quickly? I got no rhythm and I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Because you're looking at yourself in light of others. Now, the people that were there with us from our church, I wasn't looking at their dance skills. Thing. I was looking at the instructors. Thing. But when you're in the presence of greatness, what happens? You recognize that you're not great. If we want to cultivate humility, what do we do? 
We spend time reflecting upon the greatness and the holiness of God. And we quickly recognize, I don't have it all together. We quickly recognize that I don't always exhibit kindness and patience. I'm not quick to forgive. We quickly get put in our position when we reflect upon ourselves in light of our Creator. If we want to cultivate humility, it begins by spending time reflecting upon the person of God, the character of God. And God's Word this morning is calling us to a life of humility towards one another. That's what it says here in verse verse 6. Verse 5, I'm sorry, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This humility issue is a relationship issue. If we clothe ourselves in humility, God's Word is basically saying, then we can live with one another. But if we're not going to be humble towards one another, we're going to have a really hard time getting along. But if we can't defer to the needs of others, there's going to be a constant clash. God's calling us to a life of humility. Why? Because God opposes the proud. And ultimately, why is God in pursuit of us being humble? Because when we're humble, what are we doing? We're trusting someone else beside ourselves. This is the problem with pride. When I'm proud, I'm saying, hey, I can do it on my own. Rather than trusting in God. And God delights in our trust. This is the primary message of Christianity, isn't it? Believe in Jesus Christ. Walk by faith. Abraham was declared righteous. Why? Because he walked by faith. Abraham was given a call by God to go into the unknown. And God did not say, hey, here it is in clear picture. Abraham didn't even get clarity. He just what? Walked by faith. And walking by faith, he was declared righteous. And now you and I are called to the exact same thing, to live a life of faith, of trusting in Jesus Christ. God delights in our trust. And when we're in a position of humility, we're in a position of exercising trust in God. But when we're proud, we're saying, I'll do it my way, in my strength, and my time. But humility is saying, I can't do it, but I must trust in God alone. And God is saying to us this morning, pursue humility. Pursue an attitude that says, it's not about me. And in pursuit of humility then, we see that something else is going to happen. There's a major benefit for us here. And sometimes we cross right over this. And you'll notice from me, I'm a big rewards guy. I'm motivated by rewards. Put a carrot out there for me. I'm going to go after it. And sometimes in the Christian circles, we're like, well, we, we should just be motivated by being good. Be good, be be good thing. God's always given a reward for being good. And let's just be honest. He says it. Look with me at the reward here of being humble. Verse 6, and this may seem weird. So you're pursuing humility for a reward. Are you truly pursuing humility? Well, God's Word says there's a reward. So I'm just sharing the reward. So at the proper time, end of verse 6, He may exalt you. So when we pursue humility, when we say it's not about us, We're promised that at the end of the day, what's going to happen? God's going to exalt us. I don't know about you, but at the kingdom banqueting hall, I don't want the spot in the choir loft thing. I want to be at the main table that gets dismissed to the buffet line first. 
And, and there's a couple of disciples actually that had the same desire. And their mother brought the desire to Jesus on their behalf. And the mother said, hey Jesus, could my sons be at your right and at your left? And Jesus responded, hey, it's not my spot to, to give that out. And then Jesus finishes by saying, however, however, if you serve, because it's not the least, it's not the greatest who will be the greatest, but it's the least among you who will be the greatest. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus responds to the request by saying what? Pursue humility. Pursue a life that says, it's not about me. And when you pursue that life, what's going to happen? There's going to be an exaltation. <laughs> by who? By the one who matters. God himself. God is going to exalt us on the day that matters if we pursue a life of humility. And this is what we're being called to, saying, it's not about me and trusting that there's going to be a reward to come. And in pursuit of this humility, something's going to happen. Verse 7. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It's critical to see this here. Your version might say cast, and there might be a period before that. This is actually all the same line of thinking. The author's not starting a new sentence here, but it's saying, hey, as you're living a life of humility, you're going to be casting your anxieties, your worries onto God. So, a life of humility actually leads to a life that says, hey, I'm not going to worry about these concerns. I'm not going to get burdened by these anxieties. I'm going to cast them onto God because I'm trusting God. So actually, the life of a Christian should be a life almost of a fisher person. Just constantly what? Casting. What are we casting? Our concerns, our worries, and our burdens onto God. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Oh, pastor, that's a nice spiritual phrase. Give it up to the Lord. Thing. Everybody says that. I mean, think that is a spiritual thing. That's supposed to be a reality for those following Christ. That yes, we actually do give it up to the Lord because we trust that God is actually going to take it and work it out for His own good. So we actually do take our anxieties and our burdens and we release them to the Lord. Jesus had some harsh words there this morning in Luke chapter 12 for those that are living a life of anxiety. We're not called to a life of anxiety because a life of anxiety is actually a reflection of disbelief. That we're not trusting that God is going to do what God says He will do. We're called to a life of casting our anxieties onto God. And here's the weird thing about this whole thing, right? And we all know this. Anxiety and worry doesn't bring us joy or strength. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, said, Our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but only empties today of its strength. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but only empties today of its strength. And we all know this is true, right? How's that worrying working for you? It's a practical reality that matches a spiritual truth from God's Word. That we're called to pursue humility. And in pursuing humility, we cast our cares onto the Lord because we're trusting in the Lord. And in the pursuit of all of this, we got to have our awareness at full scale. We need to be ready for anything because we've got an adversary. We've got someone that's fighting against us and so if you look with me at verse 8 and 9 in 1 Peter 5, 
In 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. We are at battle as followers of Christ. That we're not just supposed to be these, these softies that's like, oh, whatever happens, people just do whatever you want to us. Thing. We are in a spiritual battle. There is an evil force. There is a personality of power that's against us that's looking for any opportunity to ruin us. I don't know if you've had any experience working with water and like driveways and foundations. If you've ever had water issues at your home, maybe you've been like, well, we've got to get things situated here, so I'm going to raise the the driveway a little bit here and try and run the water away or raise the foundation or, or fix a little crack. Because what does water do? If there's the little bit of crack, where does water go? Into that crack. If there's just a little bit of slope, what happens? Water moves. If there's just 1% slope on a concrete surface, water doesn't just sit on the concrete surface. It moves. It looks for any opportunity, anywhere it's going to go where there's a chance to go somewhere. The devil is the exact same way. Satan is at work today looking for any opportunity in your life. The moment there's a little bit of resentment in your life, Satan is looking for an opportunity to take that resentment and seal it into a life of bitterness. The moment there's a little bit of greed for a little something better, Satan's looking to take that and seal it into a life of I deserve more, more, more. Satan is constantly just looking for a little opening, a little opportunity. That's why we've got to be quick to confess, quick to acknowledge, so we do not give Satan a foothold. And I know everybody's like, whoa, slow down the talk on the Satan and devil here. That's not for us mainline folks. We don't believe in those supernatural forces. Well, someone forgot to tell that to Jesus. Because when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he's constantly casting out demons. If Satan is just a cartoon, the Gospels are just a cartoon. Satan is a reality. Active in the world today, looking for any opportunity to steal our strength and to steal our joy and ultimately to put us in a position of pride where we do not trust God. Where do, you give, where do you have an opportunity right now in your own life for Satan to work? All of us struggle with things like unforgiveness, resentment, greed. We've got to acknowledge those because Satan's going to take it and it's going to become part of your life for good. It says right here, He's prowling around looking for an opportunity. Let's not give him an opportunity. Let's not give him a foothold, but let's confess and let's receive forgiveness and begin to walk in that forgiveness that Christ extends to us. Basically, what we're being called to here from the book of 1 Peter, to be very simple and to give a picture, is that God is calling us to be a lighthouse. If I had to summarize the message of 1 Peter very simply, it's this. Be a lighthouse. If you ever look at a lighthouse, you notice a lighthouse doesn't have to have a sign on it that says what? Lighthouse. Thing. If a, if a lighthouse needs a sign that says lighthouse, what's wrong? Light's not on it. It's not functioning as a lighthouse. 
How many times do you think John Boltzma has to walk in the room and say, hey, I'm tall? <laughs> you don't have to say what you are if you are being what you are. Turn with me in 1 Peter to chapter 2, verses 9-13. through 13. It summarizes up for us the whole message of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 12. Sorry, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In very simple sense, what this is saying is very simple. Be a lighthouse. Why? Because that's what God has created you to be. He's very much simply said, hey, God has created you to be a people group. A people group that does good deeds that glorify God in heaven. Our good deeds should speak for themselves. We should not have to walk around saying, hey, we're Christians here, folks. We're Christians. But rather, we should be in pursuit of humility where the good works speak for themselves. And we should be a lighthouse where a lighthouse has one goal. Be a light. And the reason that we're a lighthouse is because a lighthouse is in the midst of a storm. There's constant waves crashing up against the what? against the lighthouse. In our life today, all of us are living right in the midst of hostility against our flesh, against our culture, and against Satan. The question is, will we stand firm? And so that's the final word from 1 Peter chapter 5. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Be a lighthouse, now verse 12, chapter 5. How does it finish? Stand firm in it. In other words, be a lighthouse. Do not let the waves knock you over. And there's only one way to do this. That's to not let the final words of 1 Peter go in one ear and out the other. And this is what happens usually with final words, right? What happens when your parents give you the final words before you leave for the night? Buckle up. Be good. Don't do anything stupid. How did that work for you? Usually the final words go what? Let's not let the final words of 1 Peter go. But maybe the first words of 1 Peter go here, right to our feet. That we would enter into pursuit of humility, casting our anxieties to the Lord, aware of Satan, so that we can stand firm and be a lighthouse. Be the people of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for this opportunity to study this word, Your Word from 1 Peter. And God, we come before You now. All of us struggle with the issue of pride. All of us struggle with releasing our worries and our anxieties and our burdens. God, I ask right now that You'd humble all of us. That You'd help us to see ourselves in light of who You are. And God, I ask this morning, 
that you would enable us to exhibit humility towards one another. And I ask, O Lord, that today you would free us from worry and anxiety. And Lord, we come before you this morning not claiming any power of our own, but simply claiming the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray, O Lord, that your kingdom would come so that Satan would would be gone. And we pray, O Lord, that you'd give us awareness to see where Satan is at work. And we pray, O Lord, that you'd give us the ability to stand firm against the work of the evil one. God, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.